Jesus is Lord. Today we're looking at unity in diversity. So this topic of spiritual gifts is something that the church at Corinth had allegedly or apparently asked Paul about and a letter that they had written to him that we do not have a copy of. So as a way of reminder, what we should be reminded of, or what we should at least remember, is that the Corinthians were in many regards a very carnal group of believers. They were saved, but they really weren't walking with the Lord in the way that they should. They were deeply entangled by the ways of the world. They quarreled with one another. They took one another to court. There were serious factions within the church. They had fallen back into immoral and idolatrous practices. They had abused their Christian liberty to do whatever it was they pleased. They were self-centered. They were overconfident. They were thoroughly worldly in every regard. And this aspect of their walk with Christ had carried over into their understanding and their application of spiritual gifts within their midst, and this resulted in widespread chaos within their worship services. Now remember, they didn't have a big building that they met in. They met from house to house, and so the level of dysfunction that would be experienced might vary from place to place, but he was writing to the corporate church in Corinth, even though it was made up of many different house groups. And so this singular purpose that was established in the first three verses of chapter 3 is that Jesus is Lord. And so what is central to our profession of faith is also central to the practice and to the understanding of spiritual gifts. This was not the practice in the church at Corinth. They had a fascination with the speech gifts, most notably the gifts of tongues or inspired utterances, and they had focused on that almost to the exclusion of any other spiritual gift. Their pagan, idolatrous background was saturated with mystery religions which emphasized ecstatic religious experiences. And as we talked about last week, This ecstatic religious experience was achieved through frenzied hypnotic chants and ceremonies where worshipers experienced semi-conscious euphoric feelings of oneness with a god or with a goddess. There was meditation on alleged sacred things. There were whirling dances. There were fragrant incenses. There were chants and other physical and psychological stimuli. And these were used to induce this ecstasy, which would be in the form of what they thought to be an out-of-body trance. So this was the ultimate pagan religious experience. (coughs) Whether it was imagined or whether it was real, through demonic activity. Now if you remember, Paul made the connection to idolatry and the presence of demons when he was dealing with the issue of eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. And he said, even though, even though an idol is nothing and the food itself is nothing, there is a demonic presence behind these idols. And so, if there was what would be experienced or even understood as an out-of-body trance, it would have to be attributed to some form of demonic activity. So a similar form of mystical experience was called enthusiasm, which often accompanied but was distinct from ecstasy. Enthusiasm involved the sibilic formulas, divination, 
revelatory dreams and visions. And so the church at Corinth shared this common background and experience, and it is very likely that this commonness had infiltrated their worship experience, and it was their desire to replicate what they had experienced in their pagan worship experience prior to their becoming a Christian. So Paul sets forth this intent to correct their improper understanding and usage of spiritual gifts, and his emphasis is going to be on tongues or inspired utterances, as we will see more specifically in chapter 14. And so most of everything said in 12 and 13 is a build-up of what Paul will address in chapter 14. But there's so much important information that he builds this argument upon that requires our careful examination. So in the same way Paul wanted to emphasize the principle of spiritual gifts centered in Jesus being Lord, he also wants to establish an understanding about this truth, that there is unity in diversity. So we're going to look at verses 4 through 7 and use this as the foundation that will help us to understand Paul's examples of spiritual gifts in the list that he gives. Here's what it says, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now when you read these four verses, you say, that's not a lot of Scripture. Well, you're right, it's not. But in order to attribute the necessary amount of time for the gifts, we need to deal with this so as to not have a 65, 70-minute long sermon, which I don't think anybody is really a fan of, including myself. So number two in our outline as we continue from the principle is unity in diversity. So before we get into this in particular, it's important for us to establish what I believe to be true, and that is this. Unity is always incredibly difficult to achieve, right? Unity is incredibly difficult to achieve within a church, within a marriage, within a family, within a culture, within a community. Yet it is the clear byproduct of a spirit-controlled life within the communal lives of believers. Let me repeat that. Unity is always incredibly difficult to achieve, yet it is the clear byproduct of a spirit-controlled life within the communal lives of believers. Now, I'm not making that up. I believe this to be the expectation for the church. This is, after all, what was modeled for us with the early church all the way back in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Now, before you read on, that's possibly hyperbole, which means there might have been some differences of opinion, maybe some disagreements. But by and large, the church had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. So, 
let's just be theoretical, if there was any kind of disagreement, if there was any kind of difference that was to be experienced within the early church, they very quickly quashed it and set it aside and had all things in common to the point where they were selling their property and their possessions and sharing them with anyone who might have need. Now, I'll tell you this, if you've got a problem with somebody in your group, you're probably not going to do that. You're probably not going to sell your stuff and give it to somebody that you disagree with or you have a difference of opinion with or perhaps you don't like. But this was not the experience of the early church. So the question to me is this. Is this experience reserved only for the early church? Or is, the, or is this experience what is to be experienced by the universal church? Are we supposed to experience the same kind of unity in our fellowship as the early church did when they were willing to do anything and everything for the community at large? How was it that they were able to experience such overwhelming unity within their fellowship? Well, Acts 2.42 really answers that question. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. What does it mean if you are continuously devoting yourself to something? What does that mean? Is it occasionally? Is it when I feel like it? Is it when I get around to it? Absolutely not. It is the highest priority. This is what the early church did. This is what their life revolved around. And I would imagine that they would do all that they had to do to get their daily chores and activities taken care of so that they could gather with other believers and learn from the apostles and to pray with one another and to experience deep spiritual connections with other believers in Christ. Before the church can ever hope to experience unity... They must be committed to the Lord and to one another. If they're not committed to the Lord, they cannot be committed to one another. And if they are committed to the Lord, then they should be committed to one another. Why? Because we are the body of Christ. And this is a lot of what Paul is going to talk about in chapter 13 and chapter 14. So the prerequisite for unity is no other way other than to experience what God has made available. Paul addressed the same issue of unity at the church at Ephesus when he wrote these words, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's a lot, and there's a big challenge there. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to listen, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So what Paul says here is that there is unity in the Spirit and we are to preserve it through Christian virtue which is experienced through our shared commitment to Christ. What God has made available to us, unity, we are to preserve by applying these Christian virtues. Let me ask you this. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, 
How humble are you? How gentle are you? How patient are you? How tolerant are you with the differences of your brothers and sisters in Christ? How willing are you to show love to them, to forgive them, to help them, to encourage them, to deny yourself to meet their needs? How willing are we to be able, excuse me, how willing are we to do that apart from the work of the Spirit in our life? I can tell you how willing I am, and it's not very much. But it's the work of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit produces in us. He produces Christian virtue, which enables us to preserve what God has created so that when we gather together, it is exciting, it is encouraging, it is refreshing, it is energizing. There is unity in the Spirit and we preserve it through the virtue that is produced by the Spirit's work in our life. This gives us the ability to preserve the unity that God has created. So here's what we need to remember. Christian virtue is the byproduct or the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Now, you can try with all your might to be more humble, to be more patient, to be more gentle, to be more tolerant, and you might be for a short amount of time, but in the end, it is dependent upon the work of the Spirit in us that enables us to preserve what God has created. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit produces in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things. There is no law. We cannot create this in ourselves. So the biggest challenge in experiencing unity, aside from the commitment issues that I've already articulated, is the reality of diversity. Think about it. Even in a small church, there is tremendous diversity. The kind of family we grew up in, the region of the country we grew up in, our childhood backgrounds, the cultural influences, the life experiences, the education that we have, our interests, our likes, and our dislikes. And the list can go on and on and on. I can sit there and say, Greg, I really love you. We've got a lot in common. We share the same kind of beliefs. But we are very, very different people. It doesn't mean that we can't find unity, and that becomes part two of this challenge, is the diversity that exists within the people of God. What happens is our diversity comes into this building, and it stops at the door, and it gets replaced with the unity that we share in Christ by virtue of our salvation, of our being a part of the body of Christ, and of our shared willingness to have Him create in us the people He desires us to be. When we come in and say, God, I'm willing to die to myself for the benefit and the blessing of these people to bring you glory, church is going to be different. Conversations are going to be different. Needs will be handled differently. Differences will be handled differently. It goes on and on and on. Our differences will naturally divide, yet the Spirit in us will unite. So if we don't have a shared commitment to the Lord, we're not going to have a shared commitment to one another. And if we do have this shared commitment to one another, it's going to be preserved and experienced through the work of the Spirit as we commit to letting our differences not become a hindrance to the unity that God has created and you and I and our church and our community so desperately needs to experience. I think one of the most tragic experiences or witnesses of the church to the world is a church that is fighting. 
denominations that disagree, and they write scathing reviews of one another. And I will say that pastors have the prerogative to disagree with other teachings, but I don't think the the pulpit should ever be a place to shame another pastor or to shame another teacher. That creates a lack of unity within the body of Christ because after all, we are not the body of Christ universal. We're an incredibly small part of that. So I think the teaching platform needs to be very, very gracious towards those that we disagree with so that it doesn't paint a divided picture to the world about Christianity. Now, there are differences within denominations and I don't agree with all the denominations and not even all of you are going to agree with me. But we have to be willing to set these incidental differences aside so that we can experience a unity that God has created so that we are a powerful, unified, committed witness to being who God has called us to be, to do what God has called us to do to make a difference in the world. I think it would be tragic to knock on a door and say, Hey, I'm from such and such a church. Isn't that the church that had the pastor that did such and such a thing? Or the church that sued the pastor over such and such a thing? Or the church that just split over such... I think that's a terrible witness, don't you? This should never be what is taking place in the conversations of the unbelieving community around us. All right, that's a soapbox. I didn't mean to get on that. I apologize. So this diversity, think about this. Think about diversity in an uncommitted, unspiritual setting like the church in Corinth, and it's just a total disaster. It resembles nothing of what God desires Worship to be about. This is what Paul is addressing. So I'm going to say this this week. I'm going to repeat this next week, word for word, as we get into the gifts in general. So our interest today, our interest today generally is on the list of gifts themselves, but that was not Paul's primary objective. He isn't trying to teach them about gifts. He's really more concerned about correcting their improper understanding and usage of gifts. So this isn't a systematic discussion of spiritual gifts, neither is it carefully worked out or exhaustive. Paul's concern here is to offer a considerable list so they will stop being singular in their own emphasis. He's dealing with the specifics of the situation in Corinth. He's not trying to teach the church there or the church universal a systematic approach, understanding, application of spiritual gifts. So I would say that in many, many cases, people read through 1 Corinthians 12 and they kind of go past 1 through 7 and they get to 8 and that's what they want to focus on. Well, if you don't understand 1 through 7, what 8 and following is all about loses its significance. So this is what Paul is primarily dealing with, is the dysfunction in Corinth. It's not a systematic treatise on spiritual gifts. So verses 4 through 6 set the theological context for all that Paul is going to say about spiritual gifts to the church at Corinth. Very clearly we can make application in our own life. So this is a relatively simple outline, but we will see the emphasis Paul places on their proper understanding of spiritual gifts. So, unity and diversity. Two key words we're going to focus on here. The first one is varieties. I'm going to read 
the first part of verses 4, 5, and 6, and then in the next word, we're going to read the other half of those verses. So, two key words. First one is varieties. 4a, now there are varieties of gifts. 5a, there are varieties of ministries. 6a, there are varieties of effects. The key word here is varieties. Varieties means distributions. It can also mean allotment or apportions. And so what Paul is saying is God has given many different kinds of gifts, many kinds of ministries, and there are many kinds of effects. The key is this. God has given varieties. Not singular, not tongues, utterances, or any kind of a speech gift. He has given many kinds of gifts. God has given these. They're not man-made, nor are they invented by man, or are they cultivated by man. They are given by God, and God has given a variety or many kinds of gifts. It is possible to put too much emphasis on the nouns here, gifts, ministries, and effects, and you can break that out to probably veer away from what Paul's central point was. Paul's not trying to make an incredibly specific distinction between these three words as much as he is trying to paint an all-encompassing picture of what it is that God has given to the church. So Paul's point is to make, isn't to make this distinction. But since these words are all different in the Greek, there is a unique nuance to each of these words, which probably helps us make an application to that a little bit better. So letter A... Gifts. That's from the Greek word charisma. And that, by the way, is where you get the word charismatic, which is the gifts which are used in charismatic Pentecostal churches in a different understanding than what we would have. But gifts is simply divine enablement. This is what we talked about last week, is God has given divine enablement. So this is a repeat of the definition that I provided last week. Spiritual gifts are the divine enablement for ministry or service to God to build up His church. If you didn't get that, ask me, and I'll give it to you at the end of the service. I repeated that a number of times last week. So here's the key. Spiritual gifts are not talents. Natural talents, natural skills, natural abilities are given by God as everything good and worthwhile is a gift from Him, but those are natural abilities shared by believer and unbeliever alike. An unbeliever can be a highly skilled artist or musician. An atheist can be a great scientist or a carpenter or an athlete or a cook. And so there's a distinction between a natural skill and a spiritual gift. So the unbeliever may use his natural talents quite differently After he is saved, he possessed these skills before he was saved. Spiritual gifts come only as a result of our salvation. So generally speaking, we'll talk about this in greater detail in the weeks ahead. Generally speaking, gifts are placed in two categories, but we shouldn't try to rigidly compartmentalize each of the gifts into one of these two categories because it's not really foolproof, and I don't think that's ever Paul's intent. So the first is the speaking gifts, like teaching or preaching, what the New Testament would call prophesying, or encouraging. It's where we use God's Word 
to teach others about him and what it is he's done. The second category of gifts is found here, and that is letter B, ministries. Ministries is from the Greek word diakonos, which is the word that we use for deacon, and it means serving. This is the word that we get deacon from. So there are speaking gifts, and there are serving gifts, and there are many ways people can serve the Lord, they can serve the church, and they can serve one another. And it is often paired with a natural gift or ability. So let's say, for example, that you have the ability to sing. But you're scared to death to sing in front of anybody with the microphone amplifying your voice or playing an instrument in front of anybody else. So you may be able to dazzle the walls of your house, but you think about doing that publicly and you go, uh, that's not going to happen. Well, if God has given you a spiritual gift of serving, for example, you can serve Him and the church and others by using your gifts as a musician or as a carpenter or as some other form to serve the needs of the church. There are numerous serving gifts, and we'll break these down in greater detail later, but there is the distinction between our natural skills and abilities and those gifts that God has given us spiritually in order to be a part of building up His church in service to Him. So, some people really struggle with this, and I've actually heard people say, well, you can't convince me that there is a spiritual gift, for example, of teaching, because there are bazillions of teachers in the world, and they could very easily come in and do that in the church. Well, yeah, they could. But the Bible lists these and calls them spiritual gifts. They call them divine enablements. So there is this sense in which God gives spiritual enablement to serve Him spiritually, whether it's paired with a natural talent or not, for the betterment of the kingdom of God. So we'll talk more about this as we explore the serving gifts later. The third one that we see here, letter C, is effects. Effects comes from the Greek word energema. Energy or impact is the word that we derive from that. And so what these gifts are and what they produce in the lives of people is the working of the Holy Spirit through the proper usage of these gifts. So again, Paul's not trying to make great distinction between these three examples or these three identifying nouns as much as he is saying that we have these gifts and they take place in these ministries and it's obvious of the impact or the effect of the usage of these gifts in the life of the community of believers. So the two key words, the first one is variety, the second word is same. Number two, the word same. Now going back and looking at verses 4, 5, and 6, the second half of those verses, 4b, but the same Lord, excuse me, but the same Spirit, 5b, and the same Lord, 6b, but the same God who works all things in all persons. So God has given variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. He's given variety of ministries, but the same Lord. He's given a variety of effect, but the same God who works all things in all persons. So this is key to Paul's explanation. Same means one. A variety of gifts, a variety of ministries, a variety of effects, but one God. Paul lists the Godhead here, Spirit, Lord, and God, and he isn't making a distinction of how each person in the Trinity is working through gifts or service or effects, 
but that it is the same God who works all things and all persons. So it isn't the Spirit who works through the gifts, and it isn't the Lord who works through the ministries, and it isn't God the Father who works through the effect. It's the same God who works in all these varieties of ministries. So whatever the gift is, whatever the ministry is, whatever the effect is, it is the same God at work through this great variety of gifts that God has given. So this is important because of how the Corinthians emphasized a singular gift over all of the other gifts and over-spiritualized the gift of tongues or the inspired utterances. They did so to such an extent that if you didn't have the gift of tongues as they understood it, then you really didn't have a gift. I'm, you know, well, you can say that, but I just don't acknowledge that because you don't have the gift like I have. I have the gift of tongues, and I'm special, and I'm important, and I'm more spiritual than you are because, after all, I have the gift of tongues, and you don't. Well, how does that build unity in the church? It doesn't. If a pastor sits up here and makes every person in the congregation feel like a second-class Christian, he's not doing his job. I'm no different from you. I've just been called and gifted differently than some of you. Not better, just different. Diversity, yet unity. So our tendency is to give more attention to, or more importance to, the more public gifts like the speaking gifts. But it is the same God at work in the speaking gifts as is at work in the serving gifts. There's no distinction. It's the same God who distributed the gifts to all of these people. And as we'll look at next time, God is the one who says, I'm going to give you this gift, and I'm going to give you that gift, and I'm going to give you a different kind of gift, and I'm going to give you gift. It's one God giving a variety of gifts for the purpose of unity, building up the church, and the reality of incredible diversity. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. If you can't stand before a group of people and teach, that's okay. God didn't gift you that way. Your gift is just as important as the speaking gifts. Your, your gift is just as important as the one that somebody else might consider to be second class or inferior. It isn't the way that it is because the same God has distributed all of these gifts as He has decided in His sovereign will. So as Paul will make clear in the verses that follow, all the gifts are equally important to the community of believers. I don't want to go too far ahead. So there's an important point that Paul is making. There's diversity within the Godhead, yet there's unity. So this is a Trinitarian construct, but it is a fluid explanation of the relationship within the Trinity. The Trinity is diverse, but it is unified. Although God is one... We understand Him in the three persons of the Trinity, don't we? We think about God the Father, we think about Jesus the Son, and we think about the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we think about them in purely humanly terms, and we think about the Son being somewhat subservient to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is kind of like that necessary stepbrother that has to be a part of the equation. That's not the way it is at all. It's one God. It's the same God, but we understand Him in three unique personalities. Although there isn't really any difference in them, we tend to think of them differently because of verses that we looked at, like, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every woman, and man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So if God is the head of Christ, does that mean that Christ is subservient to God? Does that mean He's different from God, inferior to God? 
Well, no, when Jesus set down His rightful position and came to the earth that He created for a small period of time to accomplish the plan of redemption, He, for a very limited of time, took a submissive, subservient role to the Father. But once He ascended back into heaven, all of that was set back as it was in eternity past. The Holy Spirit has always been. He was poured forth at the, on the day of Pentecost, and He indwells the life of every true believer today. It wasn't like He was just kind of hanging around saying, okay, God, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. He's always been. It's the same God, three distinct persons. Well, we'll see next week. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. So does that mean that the Father's not involved in this, and the Son's not involved in this? It's just the Spirit? No. It's one God, three persons, all united in the diversity in the way that we would understand them. I believe Paul uses our human tendency to think of God in this diverse way to emphasize that there is, in fact, unity within the diversity of the Godhead. And in the same way that is true, there is to be unity in the church even though there is great diversity. Diversity is necessary in order for unity to be experienced. Think about it like this. If every one of us that is here today was called by God and gifted by God in the exact same way, this church would not be a body of believers. It would be a monstrosity. Everybody wants to preach. Everybody wants to be up front. Nobody wants to sing. Nobody wants to play. Nobody wants to lead. Nobody wants to serve. Nobody wants to do anything. All we want to do is fight about who gets to preach next. Right? That's what would happen. Diversity is necessary for unity to be experienced. And Paul will illustrate this through the body. If we're all hands, where would the seeing be? If we're all ears, where would the talking be? So that's the, the idea that Paul is building a foundation for here, is that there is unity even though there is tremendous diversity. There's diversity in the gifts given by God for a singular purpose. Now, this was important for the Corinthian church to understand. Verse 7 says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is, by most commentary account, the thesis for the entire discussion of spiritual gifts. Even though the principle is Jesus is Lord, the thesis is God has given these gifts for the common good. So gifts are given by God to be used for the common good, for the community of believers, not for the benefit of the individual. God gifts His people for the good of the community of believers, not for the individual themselves. If God had called me to preach and had gifted me with the abilities to do that, and I did that in the quietness of my own bedroom or study or basement or garage, wherever I would do that, what good would it do the community of believers? 
If you had the gift of faith and you exhibited that only in the privacy of your own life, how would that benefit the church? And you can extrapolate that conclusion on all of these gifts. God has gifted us for the good of the church, not for our own benefit. He says, each one. What does that speak of? It speaks of diversity. Not two or three or four professional pastors, ministers to do everything. God has gifted each one. He has given a manifestation of the Spirit. It's a slight change in terminology, but it means exactly the same thing. It is evidence of the Spirit's work in the giving of these gifts. Have you ever had somebody stand before you and preach a message and you go... God didn't give him the preach of the gift of preaching. God, God didn't give him the gift of communication. Have you ever had somebody willing to serve in the nursery and they're fussing at the kids and God didn't give them the gift of service? Totally out of out of whack with what God has gifted them to do. We are to serve for the good of the community with the gift that God has given, and when we are doing that, it is evident by the Spirit's work in that individual's life. That's the manifestation of the Spirit. I believe that's the effect, is when we see people serving in the way that God has equipped them and gifted them, we see the benefit of that. And He's done so for the common good, for the purpose of unifying believers together. So the phrase here, the common good, is really a segue to chapter 13 and 14, but Paul's not done building the foundation yet. This application of the common good is going to come out through the great love chapter. And it's going to come out with a, through a scathing rebuke of how this gift of tongues or inspired utterances is being lived out or executed within the life of the church. So another part of the problem that Paul is addressing here, Paul in this foundation, is the Corinthian notion that their giftedness was for their own benefit, not so much for the community. And as this has focus so much in the gifts of tongues, we'll see how this plays out as we get through this chapter in greater detail and then into chapter 14. So for them, this notion of an individual benefit was a way for them to be admired, respected, considered spiritually superior to others. And so God has gifted me for me, and you're going to be blessed by me, and although you are a direct benefactor of that. It's really all about me. It's not about you. And that's what was taking place in the church in Corinth. They had lost the understanding that gifts are given for the purpose of building up others and of building up the church to unity of the faith. Gifts aren't to be something that one possesses selfishly, but something one expresses selflessly for the glory of God and for the building up of His church. Of course, the expectation is that we will use the giftedness given to us by God in a way that benefits the community of believers and that we won't sit on it, we won't ignore it, we won't deny it, but we will do all that we can to maximize our effectiveness through our commitment to Christ and in a subservient commitment to other people. What does it look like when a community of believers denies themselves in service to one another? 
I wonder how many times in your life as a Christian, the church that you were a part of was going to do something, and you would think to yourself, oh, you know, I'm really busy this week. Man, I'm not sure that sounds like a good time. Man, that sounds like that would be really inconvenient. I'm going to be asked to do things that I would really prefer not to do. So, I'm just not going to go. I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to be involved. You think that happens? better believe it happens. I mentioned this last week, is that the average church struggles with what is called the 80-20 rule. And that is very simply this. 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work because you've got so many people sitting on their gift, letting it go idly by because they don't have a commitment to the Lord and they don't have a commitment to the body of believers that they're a part of. I don't know how else you can justify an unwillingness to use the gift that God has given. How else would you explain it? I'm either not right with God and I don't want to be bothered, or I'm not investing in my church because the diversity is just too hard for me. I don't know how else you can explain it. There may be ways. I haven't thought of it. What would the church be like if we exercised our giftedness to the best of our ability, for the glory of God. Let's pray.